Yo. Hey, there he is. Welcome to the show, Brett. How we doing, buddy? Good. I guess you call it a show. Podcast. Podcast. Uh, yeah, man. Well, welcome to the show. I'm super stoked you're here. Um, for those of you listening at home, this is your host, Kenton Gear, and today we have the world famous Mighty Whitey, Brett Jameson. And uh, Brett is a reoccur- reoccurring character in my upcoming book, Vicious Cycle, Whiskey, Women, and Water. Brett, why don't we uh, start the uh, why don't we start the podcast? Why don't you tell folks how you got the nickname Mighty Whitey? Uh, it's not how you might think. <laughs> uh, it actually was given to me by um, somebody in the industry who's known by a lot of people that have been around for a long time, Tammy Noling, and she nicknamed me Mighty Whitey after I caught the winning fish in the White Marlin Open in two thousand and four. And how big fish. was that fish? Uh, it was an 84-pound fish, which back then was a big one. Um, now you wouldn't be so confident if you caught that on the first day. But uh, at the time, it was it was a substantial one for that tournament. Okay, you know, Brett, and uh, I know lots and lots about fishing. And so you're going to find that I'm asking you questions. You'll be like, oh, I know the answer to that. But a lot of the listeners that we're getting are from all over the world, and they might not know anything about tournament fishing or the species. So in, in, in a kind of a broader uh, stance, can you tell them the significance of the White Marlin uh, uh, tournament and what that means, how much money is involved, how many boats are competing? Can you just tell yeah, us more sure, about sure, sure. I'll yeah. give you an overall spectrum of the whole thing. Um, so it's definitely the biggest tournament on the East Coast, and – in different years, depending on how our economy was, it could be the biggest tournament in the world. Um, in 2004, it was definitely one of the biggest tournaments that's ever been held in the world. There was 438 boats that year, I believe. And um, that fish, for just that category, I don't know what the overall purse was for everything, but that fish was worth $1.3 million. $1.3 million for an 84-pound fish. That must yeah. be a pretty incredible feeling. Yeah, it was uh, – at the time, I didn't even realize how big of a deal it was. I had never competed in the White Marlin Open before and um, and was just sort of learning about all the new giant tournaments that were around um, in that in that time of my career when we went. So I um, I didn't even honestly at the time – know how big of a deal it was now i know because i know you well but you have actually won and been fortunate enough to win money in quite a few tournaments in your career um, yeah sure um we some of the biggest ones would be uh or, or i say biggest some of the things that were the most important to me in the bill fishing career was the following year in the largest white marlin open ever held there was 449 boats and this year could could top that, so I better say it while I can still say it. Um, we we won top release division, meaning we caught more marlins that year in that tournament than any other of the 448 boats. So, if the purse is 1.8 million, and I, and I guess it's much bigger today, how much money are these uh, are these boats throwing in to have a shot at that much money? Well, it's changed. The whole dynamic has changed greatly. So back then, I want to say to go across the board, 
and I'm just going to use broad terms. Somebody can look it up and, and say, hey, that guy didn't know what he was talking about. But I, I want to say off the top of my head back then, it was like $28,000. And um, five or six years ago, there was an added entry for a winner take all in the biggest division, um, which was another $10,000. So a couple of years ago or last year, even if you wanted to go across the board, let's say it was $38,000 this year, there's going to be an added division on top of that for another 20. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Um, so, so it's the- just growing exponentially. And, and I think that means that the biggest white Marlin this year, if you were to catch the lucky fat one and you were also in all of the bets, would be worth over $4 million. My God. But since they've added the $10,000 bet, nobody has caught the winning fish and been in that bet. So the second place or third place fish has been worth almost as much as first place. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. You know, you mentioned that at the time, the uh, fish you caught, you were very confident with it. And now today you don't feel, you wouldn't feel as confident. Is that because the stock has made a rebound and there's more bigger fish around? Why are there, why do you believe there's more bigger fish? Is it because people are fishing differently or what do you think? Well, I do think that a lot of that has been because of the, the use of circle hooks and we're not hurting or killing as many of the fish. And they're able to recover and and uh, and do better for the stock. I really do believe that that's had a lot to do with it. I I'm not going to pretend that every single billfish I catch is hooked in the corner of the mouth because I would know that I'm lying, and I'm not going to try and say that. But I do think that it has had a huge impact on the mortality rate of the fish we're letting go, and it's it's greatly benefited them. And and because of that. Every year, you see more and more fish on the upper end scale as opposed to barely qualifiers. That's awesome. Let me ask you, since we're on this subject, um, how do you feel about the double standard that we see a lot of times online where we have people who fish for marlin that say they're only catching release fishermen uh, crucifying someone for hanging a special fish? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, that's up to whoever is catching it. If that fish is special to them, let them hang it. That's that's it, one person's perspective can't stand for an entire fishery. That's just not reality. So, as mad as that may make people, if somebody wants to kill one just to eat it because they wanted to, that should be okay. Yeah, sure. There should be size requirements and a and a, a daily limit of how many you can catch. Um, is that fish worth more as a catch and release fish from a market standpoint? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean somebody shouldn't be able to eat one or hang it up just because it's their grandson's first Marlin ever or whatever it may be. Well, well let me ask you, cause this is a great point. I believe in that too, but I, I find it hypocritical when there's people that say, I'm only a catch and release fisherman. I don't kill marlin. And you yourself just said that not every marlin you hook is hooked in the corner of the mouth. So would you not agree that there will be collateral damage if you marlin fish long enough? 
right? Is, would you not agree that you will just accidentally kill some? There's nothing you can do about it. 100% for sure. Uh, you drag hooks through the wa- water long enough, you're going to kill fish. And even if you're bad at it, you're still going <laughs> to, you're still going to accidentally encounter some fish if you're bad at it. And, uh, and some of those encounters aren't going to go the way you want them to. And now I do think that there's a higher likelihood of having the catch and release result you're looking for. If that's what you're looking for using bait and circle hooks, um, you're going to have more snagged fish and accidental destruction through dragging lures and J hooks. Um, and I say that because I personally don't know how many fish I've hooked in the eyeball by accident. Well, we have, um, we have a good story about that. <laughs> Do tell. Well, I mean, I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember when we had a triple header? We got a triple header of Marlin and we got, was it, we lost all three of them and we got eyeballs back on two hooks at the same time. Remember that? The one that was at X marks the spot and right out front where the three mile line crosses. That's the one right off Kaivi point. We, yeah. we were just talking <laughs> about sustainable fishing and how that guy would never hurt a Marlin and we get a three banger going and all three of them come off and two of them come back with eyeballs on the hook. Yep. Yeah. The blue Marlin, the striped Marlin. And I think we caught the spearfish. Oh, did we catch a spearfish? I thought we, am I wrong? Maybe I thought we, we had a three. Stripey. Is that what it was? I thought we had lost all three, but I remember we got two eyeballs back at the same time. And I'm like, ouch. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we caught one of the fish, but it wasn't the blue Marlin. I remember that very clearly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember, I remember that because the blue was considerably bigger. And then there was like, that thing was going off and we got its eyeball back. I remember it was a pretty good size eyeball. Yeah. And then we got a stripey eyeball. And then I guess maybe we did catch one. I, I, in my mind, I thought we lost all three, but you say we caught one i believe you you've always i'm pretty, pretty sure good. we caught one of the three okay well you've always been pretty good with stats so i'll believe you i i thought that uh that came off but yeah no that that's just it you know and that that's why i think it's really hard to be too judgy um to other marlin fishermen that want to harvest a fish to eat once in a while because there is collateral damage involved so i just hope that people kind of take that into consideration i think most of us we really do want what's best for the marlin fishery and so I mean, look at look at the fishery. I mean, it, it's uh, even in, in Kona, Hawaii, it's gotten close to 90, 91 percent catch and release, uh, which is a huge difference from when I first got here. What would you say the release rate actually is on the East Coast? It must just be a fraction. Oh, the, yeah. The, the release rate would be way up there. If I had to make a guess, it would be above 91 percent. Um Yeah, and in most cases, it's only the tournaments that people are killing fish for. So as soon as you throw a little carrot out in front of them, they're willing to change their uh, their rules and kill some. But yep. <laughs> it, uh, it, it's way up there. It's probably 98% or higher release. Right. It's, su- it's super high. So um, what about uh, on the East Coast? Just out of, I know you've done a lot of tuna fishing. What would you say the state is of the tuna fishery over there right now? Uh, well, it depends on where. Um, so that it's really hard to put a true stat 
on a tuna population because just like any fish, their their stocks are going to go up and down season to season, not truly based on the stock, but partially based on the water that's bringing them in. I mean, these things have tails and they get pushed around in the current and and want to stay in this current or that current because of the temperature and food and and the body of water that they're in in general. Um, one of the things I've noticed the most about the tuna stocks isn't actually the tuna stock itself. It's uh, how bad the sharks have gotten in North Carolina on all the charter fleet um, that are out there trying to catch tunas all spring. I, I never remember that. Um, it, it seems like it's 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 gotten nearly disgusting levels of how hard you have to try to to catch your fish versus the sharks eating them. Um, now I can always remember other places like the hump off a of cat Island in the Bahamas that has always been on the difficult side to catch tunas because of the sharks. Um, but I would say that the tuna stocks in general are fairly healthy. Um, if you have any real knowledge of the tuna fisheries and, and how to go about them and, some of the some of the not so tricky, more standard run of the mill tricks, you, you're going to go out and catch plenty of tunas and and not have a huge difficulty doing it. What are your thoughts on that uh, with the, with the shark problem? Is that because there's less fish and they have they've become trained? Uh, is it because the shark population has exponentially? Uh, exploded well, why do you what are your thoughts or what are others thoughts on why the sharks have gotten so aggressive well i can only tell you my personal opinion on that um and i'll base it off of a few stats like i know that there's i know there's a long liner that gets a very very short allotted time to legally go harvest sharks here on the coast of florida and when they set their gear they catch a shark on every single hook generally because there's so many. Um, But they've also been trained by us and our interactions with them that we're a good source for food, whether it be something we're catching or they just come up near the surface and people throw whatever scraps they have to the sharks because they're excited to see sharks. And I can't fault the people for doing that. You know, they're trying to have a natural interaction while they're on the ocean, but that's probably about the same thing as feeding grizzly bears in Yellowstone. (laughs) It's just not a smart thing to do. Well, I wasn't going to go there this early in the podcast, but we, you know, that's the thing about doing a natural podcast. It just flows. And you would have a really neat perspective on this because you yourself have recently survived a shark attack. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, um, it was just last June. It's still kind of fresh. Um, I was spearfishing in the Bahamas and I've spearfished, I don't know how many hundreds of days and how many different places from the great barrier reef and vanuatu and you know all over the all over the world um and i've never had 
shark interactions like are becoming more and more commonplace these days. Um, and, and this particular case, we were, we were spearfishing and, um, we were taking general precautions that people do to try and stay safe. We were swimming in groups or staying very close to the boat. And we had just moved, I don't know, three quarters of a mile, a mile from the last place we had been in the water. The sharks were not that prevalent that day. I only remember seeing two. Uh, both, you could tell by their body language, you were just kind of cruising and checking things out, which is more what you're expecting to see if you see a shark. Um, but in any case, we moved over to this new new piece of reef and jumped in and and uh my boss and his son took off down the side of the reef so i said well i guess i'm the guy staying close to the boat and and the corner of the reef couldn't have been 40 or 50 feet from from the boat and just swam over there and had a good look around and shot a fish started swimming back to the boat with it out of the water as you do to try and um not make a bunch of smell in the water and, and had you had you bled this fish or was it stoned on the shot was this fish frantic no the fish wasn't frantic um i did see a small trickle of blood come out of it i shot it just behind the gill plate uh not a perfect shot um and when i say not a perfect shot there would have been a small amount of flesh flesh waste um because of the shot but just behind the gill plate and it had a little trickle of blood come out of it. I saw the red stream as it faded away real fast. Not like it was gushing or doing anything crazy. It wasn't frantic. And um, as I swam up to the side of the boat with the fish out of the water on the end of the spear, I pulled my snorkel out of my mouth to talk to my deckhand as I was getting ready to hand him the spear. And, um, and the shark attacked me on the arm and made uh, multiple bites on my right arm pretty close to the shoulder. And the other side of the bite mark was below my elbow. So um, it was a decent sized shark. I would put him at, you know, somewhere between six and eight foot bull shark. Um, Did the whole National Geographic thing. Like I can still see its eyes roll back in its head as it shook attached to me. Um, and uh, as it's, as it continued to try and chomp on my arm in between bites, I managed to kind of get my left hand up under its nose and push it off of me. And um, at that point I, uh, made a couple of kicks to go back towards the boat and it swum around and bit me on the left hip twice. And again, this goes back to human interaction with sharks. If anybody knows anything about shark diving and, uh, and how they do that in general, they keep feed bags on their back or their hip that they're pulling the chunks out of to pass to the sharks so that your divers can swim with them. So I have to think that the second attack was maybe a learned thing. 
Um, Plus, he was agitated because he didn't want to. He didn't get what he wanted off of the first bite. And bull sharks, they're very easily agitated. They're basically hopped up all the time, um, or can be. So, at that point, I got him off of my hip, and luckily, he didn't turn his head sideways and get a good bite. So his nose was protruding far enough that on the hip it was more of just a flesh wound just dragging the teeth maybe a inch deep through through the flesh and um i kicked over to the side of the boat and i was i'll be in uh, straight up i was in enough shock that i actually reached up with my right arm um, wow at which point the deckhand looked at me and said hey man give me your good arm and i reached up with my left arm and he jerked me in the boat and and uh, we slid my weight belt off and took the weights off of it to use as a tourniquet right under my shoulder. And um, at, the, at this point, blood everywhere. I mean, yeah, the yeah. There was a blood. there was a big green spot in the water when I looked back. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't bleeding hard enough that it was a red trail or anything. But you know, there's definitely remnants and um and the tourniquet stopped the blood from my arm and i was not i did not have any arterial damage um thank god yeah and i almost wish we hadn't done the tourniquet had i thought about it more clearly but it probably was still a huge help in the long run for anybody listening you basically shouldn't leave a tourniquet on for over two hours because it starts to do tissue damage and have other effects. And from bite time to trauma center on my attack was three hours and 15 minutes. And you had the tourniquet on the whole time. Yeah. And are you experiencing uh, fallout from that now? Well, I honestly can't say what the fallout is from. Um, I've had a, a, a recovery on the usage. Um, I have full usage of my right hand and arm. Um, but I, I do have some, some pretty decent nerve damage and I can't say whether or not that was caused by the tourniquet or caused by him biting and the scarring and stuff causing my nerves not to grow back just yet. Don't have a definite answer on that, but, um, it is best when you put a tourniquet on to write the time that it was put on right beside the tourniquet so you can keep track of what's happening. And in latter discovery, basically some surgeons and some doctors have since told me that you can slack off on the pressure every now and then, like call it every 30 or 45 minutes, if you know you're going to have a elongated period with it on just to allow some flow to go through so you don't have any bad buildups and, uh, t- and extra tissue damage from, uh, from the tourniquet itself. That's very good advice for other boaters or people that might come across an accident. Yep. Can you tell us how you ended up? I mean, so you're in the Bahamas, right? Yep. And you're saying it's three hours to a hospital. How did you get there? I mean, well, that was, not- that was a kind of a story in itself. So, after I got back in the boat, uh, we zipped over and picked up the boss and his son and ran over to the nearest island was Grand, where 
uh, a couple of nurses came out from the clinic in Grand, and um, tried to get an IV going because in her mind that was making me stable and um, was very, very unsuccessful at that. Not entirely her fault. I'd been swimming for six or seven hours and was probably dehydrated and just lost a bunch of blood and it had gotten cooler out. There was clouds and it was getting ready to start raining. Um, so a multitude of things were making my, my veins want to shrivel and, and be hard to get to, but I was probably stuck over 20 times with a needle and all over the place, both, both feet, my calves, my, left arm my left hand my wrist (laughs) all over the place trying to get an iv going um and while that was happening i I mean i mean are you are you are you feeling all this or you're still in such shock that it's just somewhere in between um i mean i I was recommending different places i i even told her hey look at that giant vein sticking out on my left foot why don't you try that (laughs) (laughs) and she didn't manage to get that either um but while that was happening, I, I don't know that I could really, you know, you are in shock, but to say I didn't feel it at all would probably not be accurate. Was there excruciating pain from it? Nah, not, not that either. Um, were, were you laying on the deck? Where are you? Yeah, so I'm on the deck of our center console. We had a beanbag that I sort of propped up on to try and be moderately comfortable. I'll call it uh, as good as you could be. And while all that was going on, we were trying to figure out how to get me to help because you probably don't want to go to the doctor there. You want to get to the best help you can with something that severe. You don't want to go to the best doctor in the Bahamas. Yeah. Um, and they kept recommending to go to this island or that island and this doctor and, and, you know, and my, my boss was actually on the phone and his son, one of the two was on the phone trying to find somebody in their network that had a plane that could come and get me. And they ended up finding one of their friends pilots was at the airport at the plane. And he flew over to the Bahamas to Walker's K which was not open um, at the time. Still under reconstruction right now, actually. The docks are beautiful. I was in there just the other day. Um, But Walker's was the closest, best place to get me out of, and the Pilatus that picked me up, um, the, the pilot on that plane was incredible and managed to be able to land and take off from a tiny little runway. So they, they flew in there and got me out, but we, um, to, to uh, further I, I, all that story. Well, hold on a second. But I, I believe you told me in the past and I just want to give him a shout out because it's another fishing member of our community. Was, was, did you tell me that it was from the, the, the crew of the Marlin Darling? They had a, it was their plane. Is that right? Yep. That's absolutely right. It was, uh, it was Marlin Darling guys playing. Um, I'll, I'll leave that nameless, but yeah, it was definitely their plane. Um, well, I just wanted to give them a shout out and a thank you from one fisherman to another. Yeah. Um, I probably would, would have lost my arm if it was not for that. 
I would have to guess. Um, but who knows? Because um, without that, we probably would have had to run back to the Florida in the center console and uh, would have been a excruciating and much longer trip to do it that way. Um, but anyway, so while, while he was lining that up and I was getting pricked and then, um, then it started downpouring. And, um, so we decided that we had to get over to the, to the airstrip. It was time to go. We pulled a tarp over me, trying to keep me moderately dry and warm. And, um, on the way over there, I actually heard the center console and everybody sort of say, oh, there's too much rocks over here. And they threw the boat in reverse. And it must have been another five or ten minutes later, it seemed like. The same thing happened again. And uh, a few minutes more go by, and I I yelled up through the tarp. I said, hey, are we going to get into this marina? (laughs) And they, uh, they pulled the tarp off of me, and I could see we were actually pulling up to the dock. At, at that point, we um, helped me shimmy onto a piece of plywood that they put on a front end loader to drive me across over to the uh, side of the runway. Um, front end loader, I'm sure, was working on the marina there because it was under construction. And um, within 20 seconds, the front end loader was stuck. So they picked up the piece of plywood and carried me over to the shack on the side of the uh, on the side of the runway there. At which point we had another ten minutes or so before the plane landed, and the nurse managed to get an IV going sitting inside the shack. <laughs> she was super relieved about it. I I don't know how big of a deal it was because at that point I'm not even losing any blood. You know, I I had <clears throat> that minor wound on my hip was still kind of dripping blood on my arm. The major wound with all the gaping flesh and everything wasn't even bleeding at all. Um, So I I personally don't know the level of importance of that IV, but I'm sure it couldn't have hurt. I know she was relieved. Um, And then the plane landed. We took off in a downpour and got back to, uh, to Palm Beach to go to the trauma center. So you land and then, I mean, what happens at that point? You're just, is, are, do they, they knock you out? Do you know what's going on? Are you getting, Oh yeah, no, I I still knew what was going on. In fact, when we landed the, um, the fire department was waiting and I, I guess the ambulance had boggled the call and took another four or five minutes to show up. And, um, they asked me what hospital I wanted to go to. I said, well, that's not my area of expertise. How about you pick the best hospital for trauma? (laughs) And uh, then they gave me a little bit of pain meds through the IV and got rushed over to the hospital and started treatment right away, rolled straight into uh, a trauma center. Now, I remember you telling me, that initially your arm like wasn't on straight and it's actually taken physical therapy to get it back in place. Is that correct? Yeah, it was, it was basically the, um, the muscles and, and, and the, the, the whole healing process, it, uh, 
it all had to it all had to grow and 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 basically mend itself to to be able to straighten my arm again um but all of that works properly and I have full usage of my hand um with the nerve damage I I I don't have full dexterity because I can't feel everything happening um but I can still uh, drop a screwdriver just as good as anybody. <laughs> what, uh, you know, following, I've got a couple questions. All right. Um, following the shark attack. Okay. And in, in the recovery, because I know you're still dealing with sensation issues and everything like that, which we don't yep. know if you're ever really going to get back. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Th- there's actually no definite answer on that. Most most doctors tend to think that, yes, I will regain the feeling in my hand, but it could be up to five years. My God. Um, so the basically- sensation itself is um, kind of a dull, odd throb. Like the stranger. Yes, <laughs> like the stranger. <laughs> um, I, I, I had, until this past week, just thought of it as not very much of a sensation until I realized how much of a reminder it is all the time. I, I pinched my first finger in an anchor chain on my right hand, the same hand. Um, and immediately you have that, that rush of pain. Cause that is a, a finger that I have feeling in. Um, but then after about five minutes, the sensation dulled a little bit. And I developed a big blood blister on my finger. And, and from about five minutes in to about an hour and a half in of that, that pinch, the sensation that I had left in my hand in that time frame is what I can best describe what the rest of my hand feels like all the time. Wow. Let me ask you, following the attack, what are your, your shot? What what are your feelings on sharks now? What are have your thoughts and feelings changed? Like what what what? I mean, what about your comfort level in the water? Have you have your thoughts being in the water and how you feel about sharks changed? Um, there's obviously multiple questions there, but I'll start out with the getting in the water, and um, I've been in the water one time since then because it was absolutely necessary for me to check running gear on my boat that I run for a living. Um, And getting in the water, I really, really, really did not want to do it. I'd like to think that eventually I can get back to enjoying the water because I always have. But, um, and and eventually even maybe being able to grab lobsters. Um. Well, but, I know that you have always loved spearfishing. So this, this, yeah, this is why I really it, asked this question. I mean, we've spent, yeah, we've and spent it's a kind lot of, of time. a major shock to my system because I always, you know, even if it was just for a swim in a nice place would get in the water. And now I just don't. Um, and I am honestly scared of it um, because I know our shock shark population is bad. And I've, I relate that to the number of encounters that I see and, and 
almost all the time when you go fishing anymore, you encounter sharks. Like, even in types of fishing that you didn't used to encounter sharks, you still see sharks now. And I say now is in like the last year to six months. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've been in the water one time since then. I'd like to think I'd get back to it, but I, uh, were you comfortable in the water? No, no, I was very slow to get in. And as I got into somewhat murky water, a fish jetted out from underneath the boat and gave me a near heart attack. Um, not not a good situation for a guy who makes his living on the water and loved it um but it is what it is and i'll just continue to deal with it but the population has got to be an issue um when i relate it to the number of occurrences that that happen on a daily basis and the number of people that have outside of spearfishing occurrences. I happen to know that was a guy attacked off a of Sombrero Key in the in Florida a couple of months after I was attacked. And he was probably slightly worse bitten on his shoulder than I was on my arm. And Sombrero Key, for anybody who doesn't know, is a sanctuary. There's no fishing. There's no chumming of any type. The guy had just anchored his boat and was just jumping in to go for a swim when he was attacked. Brutal. Yeah. Um, and there's more and more things like that popping up all the time. So what do we do moving ahead? How do we respect the sharks? Do- well, there obviously has to be some some level of sharks. You need sharks for a happy ecosystem, but at the same time, we can't go on protecting them blindly and just allowing their population to kind of grow out of control. Like it has in some areas. Now, now in the area you got bit, uh, yep. uh, do they, do they have uh shark dive? Yeah. Do they have yes. shark dives? Cause that's a real heated thing out in Hawaii right now. Yeah, no, they definitely have shark dives in that area. In fact, uh, an area not far from that as well. I pulled into last Wednesday. Uh, it's Sunday, so it was only a handful of days ago. The only permanent vessel in that marina is a shark dive boat, full-time. That's all they do. And so they basically, I mean, so out here, they always, the debate is that they put the essence in the water, which anyone who's a fisherman knows that means chumming, right? But, yeah. but they use essence. Uh, are they full-on chumming down there as well? Oh, yeah. I, before the dive left the next morning, I watched them show up with two giant burlaps of frozen skipjack tunas and bonitas and small, oily, bloody-looking fish um, for lack of a better way to put it for people that don't know what a bonita or a skipjack tuna is. So it's a very red meat, um, more pungent oiled um, type of a a tuna family fish. And they also had chum blocks. Now, see, I think that in a lot of places, 
and I think the intention is is good that we're trying to um you know showcase these beautiful creatures if you will and I think the intention is good but I agree that in many many places they're being conditioned now all the years that you fished out of Kona Hawaii like me and you we fished together for years how many times did you see a tiger shark in the harbor Can you think of any? I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna say I can't think of any. Okay, now I, I remember. I think I remember somebody saying there was one one day, but I didn't personally see it. Right. And 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 I think that's it in those years. Yeah. So that's early on. I never ever ever used to see them. And back then, everybody and their brother just threw like their fish in the harbor. Right. Now today, almost nobody throws their fish in the harbor because. By law, you're supposed to throw it in the dumpster. But we have a, a group of divers who now um, feed the sharks, though it's not legal, but they, they feed the sharks near daily out in front of the green can. There's lots of people do it. They want photos. I see a tiger shark almost every single day I'm unloading now, whereas before um, I never saw them at all. And then all of a sudden, the first time I saw one, I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. But now it's gotten to the point where it's like, okay, where is she? Where is he? I've seen as many as four tiger sharks in the harbor at the same time now. So I, I definitely, I, I have to say that they, they're definitely being conditioned by, um, but by the feeding out in front of the harbor. I mean, I, I really believe that. I, because I, you know, for over a decade, I saw fish scraps in the harbor and never seen, I never saw tiger sharks. But feeding them in the mouth of the harbor, it really seems like they've kind of made that – that's always been part of the corridor. But it seems to me that's really what has um, made the sharks come in on such a regular basis in front of the harbor. I think it's kind of like they've established that's a feeding station. And then if they do smell blood or something coming out of the harbor, they just kind of come to check it in because they've been conditioned to at the front of the harbor is a, is a free meal, you know? No, that's that's – that's entirely what it is and whatever people are making their living off of it are going to strongly disagree because it directly involves them making a living and they probably get to make better money off of a shark dive bigger attraction than just taking somebody diving oh because we have this ever sliding level of perspective that just needs to be entertained. But those sharks are definitely being trained to, to come to that area because it's a feeding station. And I actually saw a documentary one time. Now I'm going to compare it to a slightly different creature. I say slightly. Um, but monkeys in the wild. <laughs> you can set up a feeding station for them and they will come to it and come to it and come to it and come to it. And then you can stop feeding them and they basically don't leave. They just take up residency in that area because they have been taught that that's the easiest place to get food, whether it is or not. It was while you were feeding them, but it's, it's a dangerous thing we're playing to, to teach different animals to, to do what they're doing right. sooner or later those divers are going to get bit i hate to say uh, it, you know but somebody is going to have a bad encounter with a tiger shark and that 
uh, will probably not end well. I 100% agree. I say that all the time that that I can't believe someone hasn't been bit yet. Um, but I don't think necessarily this is kind of the shit part is I don't necessarily think it's going to be a diver. I think it's going to be someone that swims out one morning uh, to swim with the dolphins or something uh, that are right in front of the harbor. And yeah, right off of that beach where the parking lot exactly is right across the rocks. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that, that, that's my, I mean, I hate to say it. I hope it's not, I hope it's not me. I mean, you know, like, yeah. uh, I, I like to think that I'm pretty aware of these things, but I mean, it can happen to anyone, as you know. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the, the scary thing for me about the being in the water is I am aware of my surroundings. I am looking and I still let my guard down just enough one time to get attacked by a shark and, and I think that's part of the the problem with getting back in the water is feeling comfortable again. Well, did you let your guard down or was that a shark that was just so whipped up that even if you had your head on the swivel, you weren't going to be stopping it? Yeah, that's a good question because nobody saw it coming. You know, I had taken my head out of the water, so I was no longer looking. But my deckhand and another person on the boat were both looking directly at me in gin clear water and didn't see it coming so that one was like that I one say, was it's the ones that you don't see that are dangerous and the ones you see are probably fine well i would agree with that i mean i i have one horror story where thank god i didn't get bit but my fin got bit and uh you know nothing on the level of you but it scared the living fucking shit out of me and that shark, I never saw it coming, man. I, I had looked around, and I didn't see anything. And this shark came over the edge um, and just, whew, it was on. And that, that shark was the most aggressive shark I'd ever seen in my life. It was, like, just in a whole different mode. Even after it took the fish from me, it still came after me. It was just a whole different attitude, you know? Yeah. That shark hit me so hard that I didn't even know what had happened at first. The sensation when it first hit my arm was like an impact, not a bite. Wow. So he swum in pretty whipped up. And had I seen him coming, I don't know if there's much else I could have done. Anyway. Because come full speed. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very, very scary feeling. Um, you know, I want to shift gears here a little bit. I'm super glad that you still have your arm. I think you yeah. probably are, too. Um I think a lot of men are thinking this question and um, I know I am Uh shark bite story. Is that the best story to get laid in a bar in the world? Or I mean, like, is there a better story than a shark bite for getting laid? <laughs> I'm going to tell you the unfortunate truth is I haven't tried it. What? You're sitting on I a, haven't tried it. You're sitting on a gold mine. I have been at the table in a group of people and told the story and had two of the people sitting at the table be girls and say, oh, my God, how much do you get laid off of that all the time? <laughs> well, so, I mean, I think we I think we all know that there's just something very masculine about surviving a uh, shark bite. If you're if you're having a rough night, I recommend going with that angle. I would. It's a tank top night. <laughs> I'm not sure that any night is a tank top night in a bar, honestly, dude. <laughs> Unless you're in Australia. <laughs> yeah. But you got to show, show that thing off. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so, 
very unfortunate about the shark attack. I'm very, very happy you survived. I'm very glad that you have a good attitude going forward and very real. It's nice to hear a real perspective on it. Um, you have done a lot of traveling in your fishing career. How many countries have you fished in? And what is your favorite? Ooh. I don't know the total, honestly. Ballpark. I'm not counting each different island of the Bahamas as a different place, even though they kind of are. 25. And uh, that's a lot of places. How about, like, yeah, what's your favorite place? And my place? favorite place would kind of depend on what I want to do. And as as anybody has true passion for a sport, you know, you can't, at least for me, you can't always pick the same thing. So do I want to see a great number of billfish today? Do I want to see a big billfish today? Do I want to fish for bottom fish or light tackle fish for something else entirely? The, the, the favorite country would depend on that. Obviously, the first thing that's the first two things that spring to my mind would be the Great Barrier Reef, Australia being the greatest big fish fishery on the planet. And I don't think anybody can really argue with that. Amen. I've told charters for years that basically, if you really, really want to go see a giant marlin, you got to go spend five or six days on the Great Barrier Reef and you will most likely see one. Um, for numbers of billfish, you know, I, I got fortunate enough to see the fishing in Venezuela on the natural fishing before it shut. Yeah, what, what is, I say, what is the I say story natural that? fishing because I, um, I believe there's a big difference from a true fisherman standpoint on using a sonar and driving around floating fads in the ocean that are pointing you in the right direction. And then the sonar does the rest of it to get you on a great number of fish versus fishing before everybody was using sonar on natural bottom and current. Um, Can you explain that a little bit to the people listening that don't know what you're saying here? Uh, okay. So there's a great number of fisheries now that are driven by fads, which is anything put in the ocean to attract fish to it. And it actually stands for fish aggregating device. And it can be anything, um, but it can be an artificial reef on the bottom. Could be a, considered a fad. But in, in the cases that I'm speaking of, more of it is often a giant floatsome put out, whether it's netted pieces of floating debris from bleach bottles that are sealed off and Coke bottles and hunks of styrofoam that are all put in a piece of net um, to, to hover above the bottom or on the surface of the ocean to attract bait fish and generally in areas with lots of current and quickly moving fish. So basically it slows the fish down long enough you can target them. Because in these areas, 
like the Mona Passage off of uh, the Dominican Republic where you would put them. These fish are traveling through so quickly that your interaction with these fish is very minimal until you put something there to get them to slow down and stop and feed on some bait that's been attracted by this fad. Or just to say, hey, look, there's, you know, the potential for feed because there's something floating here. And um, and they and they're trained just like anything else. They, they see trees naturally floating in the ocean all the time or giant hunks of bamboo or whatever it is that attracts feed. And so they slow down to check it out. And and we actually have adapted sonar to be able to scan back and forth and search out these fish around floatsome or just in the open ocean and help us find the fish faster and easier. So the whole, the whole fishery as far as bill fishing is concerned has changed drastically in the last 10 years, let's say uh, from the electronics and our interactions with fish to basically for lack of a better way of saying it, appease the boss faster because he's wanting to be entertained. So we want to do that. And on top of it, we're allowing people who never learn how to read water or understand current or bottom structure, go out there with these electronics and find fish. On the other side of it, if you put a team together that are all excellent fishermen and give them that equipment, Oh my God, the results are unbelievable. Uh, the numbers of, of fish caught because of that stuff are staggering. Truly unbelievable the, the numbers that are being caught now with that equipment versus what it used to be. Everybody's perspective has greatly changed on just like a sliding scale because it's always evolving and changing. Um, now where you used to be super excited by going fishing and having one blue marlin bite for the day or three blue marlin bites would be an incredible day. People are catching 20 because of the fads and the equipment. It's really incredible how far that stuff has come. I, so before we get too far off subject though, you were saying Venezuela when it was natural, does that, does that mean that they've gone to fads there as well? Or did you mean because I, I, didn't everyone get kicked out of Venezuela? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody, nobody from America is fishing there right now anyway. Yeah, what was the story um, with that exactly? It had something to do with the fuel, right? Yeah. That's what threw the red flags for, for all of us. It was somebody's program that was actually not even staying in Venezuela. They were on their way to Brazil. And they wanted to get a large quantity of fuel. And because the fuel was subsidized by the government over there, um, it was like 14 cents a gallon at the time, if you were paying full price. And uh, they were actually told by the, I'm not going to tell you yeah. who it Yeah, was. please, please um, don't. But they were actually told by the fuel dock that they could not fuel up their mothership because it would draw too much attention to what was happening in the marina there. And things were already fairly unstable with the government situation and, and with the Americans being there. And 
and trying to fly under the radar so people could fly in and enjoy the incredible beauty and fishery that is Venezuela. And, and they have so much natural beauty in the mountains there as well. And some of their offshore fisheries like in Los Rocas, but they, um, they were, they were told do not fill your mothership. So what they actually did was um, they took the game boat in and filled it up and drove it out to the mothership and dumped the fuel in the mothership a multitude of times to fill up the mothership with as much fuel as they wanted to continue on their trip. That would have been a lot of trips, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it did exactly what the guy at the fuel dock said it would do. And all of a sudden, basically all of the boats there were kind of on lockdown and were scared if they were going to get out of Venezuela. And some people tried to bribe to get fuel so they could leave. I don't believe that worked at any level. And um, nobody wanted that to become the norm. So that one boat that did that was kind of frowned upon greatly. Um, And then they decided to set the rate for, I believe it was $2.50 a gallon for all American flag vessels fishing in Venezuela to get fuel and everybody quickly finished their season and I don't believe anybody has been back since. Um, and with what's going on over now, but, it, but it's not, it's not just, the, it's not anyway. just the fuel price. It's, it's the, un, the government uncertainty, right? Yeah. The government's instability is why we're not there right now. And if you want to talk about that or just touch on it, it wasn't great when we were there, but there were areas that were known and, and people had taxi drivers that they knew and and went to restaurants in town and flew into, you know, Caracas Airport. But it, it um, I guess it was still a little bit on the on the iffy side even back then. But ton, enough people did it that the perspective said that it was OK and there were no big problems with it. But that fishery was completely natural and current driven, like most of them are. So you could go there and and I believe my best day, I don't remember how many fish we saw, but my best day, blue marlin fishing there in the spring, which is their primary blue marlin fishing. In the fall, they, they get um, huge mixed bags like... Uh, you could have four or five, six blue marlin bites and 30 white marlin bites and half a dozen sail bites in a day. And that's all just natural fishing. But in the spring when I was there, it's primarily blue marlins. And our best day there, we hooked 22. Wow. Um, with Without fads and any of that stuff, just natural fishing. Um, my best day of fishing actually exceeds that. And it was with a good friend of mine, Mario. We were fishing in the ESPN Bill Fishing Extreme tournament that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and we hooked 24 one day in a place near, it's actually between Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. It's called the Pachincho Bank. And that was all natural fishing as well. It was natural structure and current that we were fishing. And uh, we managed to hook 24 one day. That was 
that, that's still my best day of blue marlin fishing. Ever. That's an incredible day of marlin fishing. Any size to him? Any big ones? Not, not in that group. Um, not far from there, right out front of Copcana in the Dominican Republic on the natural banks there in the spring, you might see a big one sometimes. I saw one there uh, in the spring. Oh, I want to say it was probably – it was a long time ago, 06 or 07. I was fishing with Butch Cox in the prime time. We saw one that was probably 600 pounds um, amongst, you know, catching other smaller ones. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Spend any time in St. Thomas? I have spent a little bit of time in St. Thomas, but only a few moons. And I, I never personally got to see some of the spectacular fishing that can happen there was never lucky enough to be out on the right days on the right boat to, to have that happen. Um, and, and that fishery seems to have slid a little bit. I know everybody was always there in July and August, and then it extended into September and, and the September fishing was actually probably your best month for numbers. Um, it seems that some of the people have had even better numbers than that in October recently amazing ever see any real big ones there nope they were all cookie cutters 225 250 there for me gotcha let me ask you because this is a place i always found fascinated that you travel to tell me about your time in africa okay so kenya was was a really unbelievable fishery that place it um it had drastic swings day to day on what you were going to see and catch. And it was such a cool dynamic. I mean, just the plethora of, of life that was there in general was amazing. And um, when I say the drastic swing, you'd have your bycatch on a daily basis, whether it be a narrow barred mackerel or yellow fin tuna or, wahoo or whatever you had some bycatch pretty much every day but one day you could go out and see four or five black marlins and then the next day you saw one black marlin and four striped marlins and eight stripe or eight sailfish it was just the dynamic was ever shifting and um, i've never seen a fishery for swordfish like they have their uh their nighttime trolling for swordfish i have to say would be second to none there's the, I, i've never heard of anybody encountering anything even close to resembling what they have over there they have so many swordfish bite on the troll at night that you can literally target them with a fly reasonably and think that you're going to have shots every night. Um, and when I say shots, I mean be able to actually tease with an artificial lure a swordfish into the boat close enough to cast a fly to it in the dark and get a bite. Any size of the swordfish? That actually varied greatly as well. Um, I remember one night we caught 13 from 26 bites. What? 
You caught 13 swordfish yeah. in a night? Yeah. And, and they ranged in size from like what must have been 10 or 15 pounds, extremely small, to like 50 pounds. And I believe that's also why our hookup ratio was so bad is because they were swatting at it and unable to hook themselves very well. Um, and possibly uncoordinated because they're so small and young. Um, the best night for hookup ratio was the opposite of that. So they were like 75 to 150 pounds that night and we were 11 for 13. So that would again, sort of back up my thought on because they were larger fish, they were eating properly. Um, but it, to be able to go out and think that you could have any number of shots on trolling a swordfish in a night is just mind boggling. And, and they had it on a fairly consistent basis. If you wanted to catch a super slam or a fantasy slam, that was a place to do it. And when I say that, I mean three or four billfish in a one day period of different types. So over there, you could potentially get a blue, black, a stripe, a sail, a sword all in one day. Incredible. Did you, did you ever do, did you ever get the five banger? No, I did not. I never had a blue and a black on the same day. Um, we did have blue and black bites on the same day, but we never captured blues and blacks on the same day. But I did catch a uh, blue stripe sail sword in a trip, and I did catch a black stripe sail sword in a trip. See any real big swords there? I did not see any giant ones. Um, I want to say that 150 pounds is probably about the biggest one we saw. They did have... Um, a really nice yellowfin bite one night while we were all out on the North Kenya bank. Um, a bunch of boats were all out fishing a, like a multi-day, multi-boat fishing excursion. And uh, it was really pretty special, uh, the number of fish that were caught during that. Big ones? Yeah, they were they were reasonably good tunas. A lot of uh, like eighty pound yellowfins, hundred pound yellowfins. No true giants, uh, but it wasn't just catching footballs either. They weren't just fifteen or twenty pounders. They were reasonable big yellowfin tunas. Was that the best tuna bite you ever saw? Oh, not even close. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't think that would be the answer, but you knew the answer to that. Well. Well, before we get too far back into that, uh, I want to take a quick break right now, Brett, if that's all right. Yeah, um, so we're going to finish this recording and uh, I'm going to call you back here in just a couple minutes. Uh, make yourself another drink or whatever you got to do. And uh, I'll call you in a couple minutes. Hey, Brett, welcome back. Yo, yo. Sorry about that, man. My back teeth were just floating. So the same. I was ready. Oh, good, good. Well, that's the thing when you drink and podcast, you're going to need to take a break once in a while. So uh, thanks for coming back. I really appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm really digging this. You're doing great. So thank you very much. Uh, when we left a minute ago, we were talking about, um, you know, asking if that was your best tuna bite you've ever seen. And one story 
that I know. And what I love is you have just traveled all over the place. And uh, I always love hearing stories from other places. But I remember <clears> you telling me about a insane tuna bite off Vanuatu. Would that be your best tuna bite? And if not, at least tell us about that one. That definitely would have been my best tuna bite um, while sport fishing. But I don't think anything compares to some of the commercial fishing that you and I have seen together out on that cross sea mountain for quantity and overall tonnage put on a boat in a short period of time. Well, definitely not. But uh, I I just, I I do recall um, you telling me that story about, big one it was big ones in vanuatu right i mean yeah they where were, is, they, where is the majority vanuatu of for... them were like 120 to 160 pound yellow fins and they were the the true allisons with the giant sickles um god it was it was unbelievable there was just acres and acres of them and birds chasing the bait all over the place and they, they were just blowing up on the bait and skying out it it was everything you can think of like seeing something on discovery channel or national geographic. It was, it was um, truly one of those mind blowing experiences. So that, you know, that, that, that's really cool. Uh, Where is Vanuatu? Like, you know, like, okay. So Vanuatu is below Fiji. um, Well off the coast of Australia. In Northern Australia, I want to say they're 700 miles from Noumea to Bundaberg, Australia. And then the last gap over to Vanuatu from there is four or 500 miles or something. How did you find yourself there? Um, well, I, uh, I actually love fishing of all types but I also love experiencing new places as well. And I think that's partially why it's all types. So I, I enjoyed fishing everything from casting tiny dry flies and, and pocket pools in streams that you can jump across in Maine to long lining and everything in between with the bottom fishing and the Marlin fishing and everything else. And I started, um, I started traveling really, really hard at one stage in my career and and wanted to basically just experience different places and see the different places and the different fisheries that they offered and not just go to the same places over and over again. And so I ended up trying to just as much as catch fish, see somewhere else. And if I had been to two or three different places this time of year and somewhere else had a season that time of year, then that's where I was going. And um, Vanuatu actually fell on a time frame that I had open. Wasn't necessarily their best time of the year to be there even, honestly. Still saw some truly incredible fishing. We had some great blue marlin fishing. Their, their dog tooth tuna fishing and jigging is probably as good as it gets. Um, you may be able to get dog tooth fishing that good in some of the extreme hundreds of miles offshore outer reef off of the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. 
but as far as a destination to go to to catch giant dog tooths, that's probably it. Um, but I ended up there because I had a gap in my year, and it wasn't that far from Australia. I had to see it. I had heard a bunch of cool things about the place, and it's beautiful. It's it's truly unspoiled South Pacific islands, like you think of them. the The people are super friendly. It's um, a remarkable place, to say the least. Sounds incredible. I know you speak highly of it, so I uh, I was curious how you ended up out there. You know, we've been friends for many years now, and sometimes we're both on the move so much, and you've been traveling. Sometimes I, I lose track. I'm like, how the hell did he end up out there anyways, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it was um, – I was leaving the Great Barrier Reef, and I didn't have anything planned for – my December, January, February yet. So I went and um, ended up seeing some really, really cool fishing and meeting some great people over there. Um, there's some great outfits to, to go fishing over there with, with uh, Russ Housby and Charles Wheeler. And and I'm sure there's others, but those were the people that, that I spent most of my time with while I was there. Any idea what those guys' uh, websites are, if people were interested in checking them out? Any guess on uh, that? I know Charles is running the Never Give Up, so I would have to guess that it's something along those lines. Um, and I think Russ Bag's fishing site is Nambas Fishing, N A M B A S. Yeah, and you know what? That's, he's a, he's that's a great, the name of his vessel that he's currently running. He's a great follow on Instagram as well. If you want to see some cool fishing, uh, some really cool sport fishing, I recommend you follow him. That's a that's a that's a really good follow on Instagram as well. He he's the real deal. Yeah, and again, you'll see a lot of variety through that kind of thing too. It's not just marlin posts every day. You will see plenty of marlin posts because it's a great marlin fishery. But he'll actually put up his pictures of the giant trevallies that they're catching on the poppers and the the dog tooths that they're catching on those trips as well. So it's um it, it's got a lot to offer. See, I've always held that same thing that you do. That I love all fishing. I'm not just set on like one type so i've got i've got that same that same addiction um you know i i have that i have that same thing i would say at this point i've done some traveling i would say you are better traveled than me i've definitely slowed down with uh with children i still love traveling um but not able to do quite as exotic stuff so i do love the fact that you are still out there on the uh, endless pursuit uh you know the endless summer of fishing i i give you a lot of credit and i love that so i'm glad you're doing that but I do want to talk about there was a time frame in there when you were a full time, just about full time commercial fisherman. Even when you were commercial fishing, you still took uh, you still took some breaks to go sport fishing. I mean, you always fish the tournaments and things like that. Um, yeah, and I, I think I'll, I I missed one year in Australia out of those three and a half years that we did all that commercial fishing and the long lining and all. But. I still made it over to Australia to the Barrier Reef season twice during that. Right. Now, people at home wouldn't know this, but Brett is the main reason that we named our boat. So Brett was my original business partner. And the main reason the boat was named Vicious Cycle has to do with an incident involving Brett and my ex. Now, Brett had made the most – how do I say this? The most – 
the most unacceptable mistake in our household at the time, which was wearing your slippers inside. Now, slippers in Hawaii are like what, you know, they call flip-flops on the East Coast or, uh, you know, or, or uh, flip-flops or sandals, thongs in Australia. And uh, Brett had wore the slippers in my, in my house. And uh, I remember that uh, my ex at the time was not happy about Brett wearing his slippers inside the house. And she went off on one of her world-famous rants of uh, tyranny. And I remember, like, the door slammed to the bedroom. And I remember rubbing my temples. And, I, and, and we had been in a long, long discussion on what to name the boat. And I remember the door slammed. And I go, fuck, that is a vicious cycle. And Brett goes, that's a great name. And I was thinking, like, what, big cunt, you know, because we already, <laughs> we, we had already put we had already played with the idea of big cunt. But we thought, you know, to the for the to the homage to our, our, our friends in Australia for what they call big fish. But then we knew that, like, that wouldn't be politically correct. We played a whole bunch of names. But then he, I, I remember um, he's like, no, vicious cycle. He's like, think about it. And and I'm like, yeah, you're right. So vicious cycle really is derived from Brett saying that's a great name after I, I, I was in reference to my girlfriend screaming at me. And uh, so Brett is forever connected to the vicious cycle for that reason. Was she your girlfriend at the time or fiance? Girlfriend. Girlfriend. Okay. Yeah. This is, this, that, that was still a girlfriend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My time frames aren't very good. And my remembrance on, how many years ago things were is even worse. Yeah, you know, I but, uh, find that my stuff, the only reason that I am able to hold any accountability on a lot of that is because I've held logbooks for so many years. You know what I mean? Because I, I get sloppy sometimes too, and I got to go back and look, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that wasn't as good as I thought. Or, oh, that was better than I remember. You know? It's always better when it's the other way. Yeah, it's better. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's just not as good. Oh, sometimes. that's better than I thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, but you know what? The good thing about logbooks, man, and I've always kept them in my traveling, it Reese gives you a more accurate depiction because sometimes it cu- helps tell the reality of it better than than our minds because sometimes our minds will lean towards things being better than they were, you know? You know what I'm saying? Perception, man. Yeah. It, it, it regulates everything. Yeah, definitely. Ever sliding scale of perception. Without a doubt, man. The, the difference between the perception and the reality are are two things that we go into all the time. Me and Brett, I don't, you know, we could go on. We caught so many tunas together, especially in our early years. Often it would be just the two of us that would go out and we would just tag team it. I mean, half of my book is honestly about fishing with Brett. So I'll spare a lot of those stories. If you want to hear, you want to hear uh, a bunch of, big you know a bunch of tuna fishing stories um they're in the book uh you know I, I and i don't want to surprise brett with this you know when I, the first time i met brett i uh i wasn't sure that i liked him i met him in the, the front seat of my uh friend tiny's car and i'd been drinking and uh you picked me up from the airport do you remember that had I been drinking yet oh uh, I, I i i kind of would think in hindsight that based on some of the comments yes because I remember thinking in the front seat, Tiny picked me up from the airport. I just, he was picking me up from Cairns, Australia. And uh, this was the first time I met Brett. And I remember thinking like, who is this cock in the front seat? You know, like Brett just had all the confidence in the world. And 
and uh, and and I had just gotten back from the reef, and uh, I remember telling the story, and then and I don't know, he said something where I was just like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" But we would go on, and I I, I view Brett as one of my very best friends in the world now, and we have done a lot of stuff together. So I say this a lot, but I really mean it with Brett. Sometimes you just don't know who's going to forever change your life, and Brett is one of those people that forever changed my way my life. In such a positive way, had you told me that the first time I met him uh, getting off the plane, I would have thought, nah. But Brett has just been a huge, huge influence and uh, such an important person in my life. So I'm really glad you're here today, buddy. It's good to be here. <laughs> what can I say? Um, let, me, let me ask you. Should we, should we, are we allowed to talk about maybe one of our... Uh... Wait, hey. One of our quickest fill-ups. We're, hey, we are or something something fun to yeah yeah without a doubt, dabble man, we on can, you know a little bit of where things went yeah you know we can talk about all that stuff that for sure man this is a very open and uh, honest uh, yeah. I mean I don't want to spoil any surprises and and I'm gonna have to lean on you with your notes to to recall some of the numbers but oh, I think do I need to get a log fastest, I think the fastest best trip we ever had for. For weight, wasn't it like six hours of fishing, just the two of us for 13,600 pounds or something like that? Yeah, I think you're about 22 pounds short, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just had one of those dream trips. We, we got out there. It was just the two of us. Now, what the people at home should know is that at that time, we didn't gill and gut all the fish. That right. That has really slowed down the process because... In the old days, we'd have a box chopped, our first box when we got there, and we would just, the bigger one, the bigger fish, like if they were like over 100 pounds, we normally pulled the, the guts out of, but we just used to bleed everything and put it back. But yeah, that, that, was, that was right. From, it took us 18 hours to get there, about six hours of fishing, and we were on our way home. We were just absolutely stuffed. It was just the two of us. We got out there, and uh, I, I remember this day very clearly. We got out there and there was a another boat out there and they said there's gorillas around but the the boat do you remember this? Yeah. The the boat they they didn't really have a whole lot of experience and me and Brett are like what the f- yeah gorilla yeah right whatever you know and uh, we're like we're thinking like cuz we had driven by this other boat at one point and they were literally holding up a picture or they were holding up like a 40 pounder and they were taking pictures of it like they were on a sport boat remember that? Yep. And I'm like Oh yeah, real gorillas. And then they said, "Oh yeah, there's gorillas around, but they're not biting." And so I saw, uh, so, so these guys, we drive right by them, and they're not on the pile, but they're taking a photo of like one forty pounder, and people are smiling and hanging around. And me and Brett are like, "What the fuck are these guys out sport fishing here?" And Brett saw it was like four or five birds, right? It wasn't a very big pile. No, it wasn't very big. But I remember Brett goes, "Oh, they're over there," and uh, <laughs> we drive up to them, and I'm like, "Oh shit, they're already on the top, Brett." And it was like from the top to uh you know it wasn't a super deep pile but the whole pile was on the surface and fuck i just remember that like it was just on before we even threw palu just every dangler was going up and those gorillas they said i remember they those gorillas they said that wouldn't bite they were fucking snapping i remember we rolled into that pile and just every fucking dangler is exploding when there was plenty of big ones mixed in yeah, how, how's that saying go? Park and pull? It was park and pull, man. It was just fucking. Yeah. 
it wasn't even really park and pull though at first because it was the danglers it was slow trolling but it was just i remember that the biggest problem we had was like okay we got to stop and pack fish yeah and the danglers and this happens not too often but i remember we had to put the danglers in the boat because if the danglers were just hanging we're not throwing any bait the rubber squid were just in the water we couldn't get tunas to stop fucking biting them Oh. No boat movement, no palu going in the water, and they're still biting the rubber squids just dangling beside the boat. Yeah, it was fucking nuts. I remember we just absolutely hatched out that little boat for what for what it could hold. I just never forget that. They're like, there's gorillas, but they won't bite when we drive in this pile. It was so fucking beyond on. It was just ridiculous. Uh, I also remember that the fish were so aggressive. I remember that we typically brought 30 cases of anchovies on a trip. And I remember that it only took us, we only used two cases of anchovies to fill the boat. And a lot of that was just actually dumping those two cases we had opened over the side. It didn't even take the full two cases of bait to stuff the boat. (laughs) And then we ended up buying that boat. We, we did. We did later on go on and end up buying that. Uh, we ended the up boat from the guys that uh, were taking the photos. Yeah, we ended up owning that other boat at one point too, and that could be a that could be a three year odyssey of pain and suffering, which is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is a great lesson that sometimes when you're doing really well at something, um, there there's something to be said about staying small and uh, really learning your business before you expand because we had had so much success early on with our first boat uh, that we thought that would translate right into the next boat. And my God, did that other boat have a fucking pile of misery that came with it, didn't it, Brett? Yeah, I lived on that boat for a year and a half. Yeah, so, yep, so I don't have to tell you, but uh, yeah, we, uh, that, that boat... That boat, that boat just had so many problems that that's just a whole different story in itself. But Brett did go on. Uh, I think this should be noted. Brett did go on uh, after we had moved on from that boat. Uh, he ran a boat called the Kraken. And yep. immediately fucking highly successful longlining that boat. Can you tell us about about that about that longline fishery and uh in, in hawaii and uh your biggest trip because you immediately sure. smashed them well i mean it, it was the preparation of driving that other boat that did it honestly because it was the things that were holding us back from doing a true longline fishery on that boat that made it so easy for me once i got on a true longliner once you got on and boat, i that say boat. that because you know that boat I had a maximum of 15 days dock to dock. I couldn't move. I was restricted because I didn't have enough fuel. Now, now we should tell the people this. We got fucked on that big time. Yeah. So we, yeah. we bought, we bought, we bought this boat under the premise that it had double the fuel capacity that it actually had in reality. Yep. Uh, um, and so, that 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 was that was a real bummer and that's where our problem started and brett discovered that on one of his first trips he's like fuck i shouldn't i shouldn't why is the engine i remember you contacting me like dude we're out of fuel i'm like that's impossible and yeah. uh 
that is kind of where a lot of the problems started with that boat is that right off the bat, when we filled it up the first time, we were thinking, oh, man, the tanks are half full. But in reality, the tanks have like 40 gallons in them. Yeah. They just didn't hold nearly what we thought it did. So yeah. dealing with that scenario of not being able to, to move when you need to make a move and being restricted on the number of sets because of the number of days you can be out based on the fuel. And it didn't have a freezer, so I couldn't keep my bait good for really any longer than that anyway, even packed in ice. Right. Um, dealing with all that, it, when I jumped on a boat that had a freezer and had fuel capacity, it was easy. Yeah, you smashed them. And, and that fishery is really unbelievable. Um, never had a problem catching fish even on the other boat i had i had some slower trips but a lot of the a lot of times i think that was because you were handcuffed to a location because you didn't have the ability to move yeah and and then when i got on this other boat man my average trip across all of them i did was 28 and a half thousand pounds per trip to put things into perspective, that's, you know, going out on the ocean and doing 10 to 12 sets. And a set is you put all your hooks in the water. And at the time, we were setting 3,200 hooks a day, hanging off a line that the fish have to bite and still be hooked on when you come back to it. So you'd set all your stuff and then you'd haul it all back. And you only had about a three or four hour interim in between stopping setting and hauling back because it took so long to set and haul that much gear that it took 24 hours to do that process with like a three or four hour interim. But in that time frame, to catch 28 and a half thousand pounds average on 10 to 12 sets, the fleet average with all the best boats and all the worst boats for the Hawaii Longline fleet was around 14,000 pounds. Yeah, at that time, that's, 13, 13,500 13, at the time. Yeah, and that's not a bunch of boats that were restricted on ability to do their job like the one I had been previously trying to run. Um, those are guys that have been in the fleet and doing it for years and years. But what do you think the difference is? This is a great story. This is a great I, – I, I interviewed your old buddy Joe Dentling. Okay. And why do you think that the average number at that time was so low? Because it's way up now because of the technology and stuff. Do you think it was it was an older generation that wasn't up on technology? What why do you think that was that the newer guys surpassed those guys? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Just like any time you talk about any fishery or or the way anything goes down, it's uh, you, you you can have a make or break item in there but it's always a multitude of things and technology definitely played a part in it but i think a lot of the guys were just setting and hauling gear the way they had forever and ever and they hadn't adapted to changing conditions and being able to figure out where to put the gear and the gear itself i set and hauled lighter gear so the gear itself had more free movement and the 
baits themselves would move better in the water. I even set every other float was a smaller float so that it would bob differently and give it a different action um, and be able to be towed through the water more easily, which would entice another fish nearby to eat. Um, Sounds like you took a lot of your sport fishing knowledge and brought it into the long line. Yeah, in a large respect, I did. And, and it's, those, it's that attention to detail in all aspects of your fishery that really can change things more than anything. And, and when I started doing full-scale long lining on our boat, I was looking at a multitude of things that was not necessarily that important on the satellite charts. So I based the majority of my setting and hauling the gear off of information sent to me from satellite charts. And then I would fine tune it once I got in that water and change my angle slightly or move over slightly or whatever I needed to do to increase my catch. But I started out based on the information from satellite charts. And I was looking at chlorophyll content in the area and up current. I was looking at water temperature. I was looking at bottom structure. I was looking at the speed of the anomaly itself. And when I say anomaly, I mean a small, a, a particular body of water that was maintaining a specific current or a, mul uh, a multiple area of currents that were converging into one, like, like two or three rivers all pouring into a, a, a single area. And um, I, I quickly found that I didn't need to pay attention to so many things that the current told me everything I needed to know. That everything was going to be based on that. I didn't need to pay as much attention to the temperature. It just didn't matter as much. So, and the chlorophyll really didn't seem to matter that much. So the, the, the bottom contours didn't matter hardly at all. So the current overrided everything. Yeah, everything, everything. And that's why when I talk about certain fisheries and you ask me about, you know, the fisheries up and down the East Coast, and I, I sort of dabbled in our last conversation um, on everything is current driven. It's because it is. If there's a slow year for tunas, in the charter fleet in North Carolina or in the Northeast canyons or the white Marlins don't show up or, you know, the sail fishing isn't good in Florida or what it's not because the fish are gone from, from population standpoint, they're just not here right now because that current has taken them somewhere else. And when that current cycles back or a different current cycles back, that's driving the force of those fish, whether it be bait or whatever, and that's the primary reason, um, those fish will be back. And there's trends all over the world in different fisheries as they go up and down. You have, you know, two or three good years, and then you'll have a medium year or a couple of mediocre years, and then probably a bad one, and, and then it starts its trend back up the other way. It's not because the fish went, went out of life. They're not extinct. They didn't vanish. They just went away with a current. And when that current 
comes back in again, they'll be there. That's the number one driving force on the Kona coast is that anomaly that sits below the island. And when that pushes in real good and strong, it pushes the fish in. I, I mean, I just agree. I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. So I'm just sitting here thinking, this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with you on so many of those things. Uh, Brett, you were wildly successful in the Hawaiian longline fleet as far as catching huge loads of fish. Why'd you stop doing it? Um, well, there, the biggest reason was they told me they didn't want my fish. And when you say I was successful, I've already talked about my average load and, and, um, uh, successful my catch, best, my best successful load catch of fish, wise. come again, successful catch wise. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my best load of fish ever was 34,000 pounds. And I mean, I did that in 10 sets and for anybody out there that's stupid stitious. And yes, I did call it that. Um, there's tons of superstitions and all types of fisheries and, and I'm sure hunting and everything else. One of the big superstitions in commercial fishing and, and freighters and large ships is you don't leave port on a Friday. And they also like to talk about not taking women and naturally, all fishing, people talk about the bananas. My best trip ever, I was designated a female observer. So I left on a Friday and I took more bananas than I've ever taken. And I caught 34,000 pounds of fish. Um, but on return with said catches of fish. Um, these, were, these were big fish, too, is what should be noted. You caught a lot of big fish on that trip. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, the, the trip I'm about to talk about is, is a different trip. But this is the trip that ultimately ended up driving me, not the 34,000-pound trip, another trip, ended up ultimately driving me out of the business. And, and I, I had just become too frustrated with the auction there at United Fish and um, seeing the collusion between the buyers. And, and I had actually gone to them and said, look, I'm tired of you guys basically telling me you don't want my fish. Show me that you want my fish by paying me for these fish. And their average scenario of what they would do, in general, you'd get paid on one trip out of three. And so I said, I'm giving you guys three trips. Show me, show me that you want my fish. And I went out on my next trip and I actually came in with, with kind of a light load for me, but I, I knew I needed to land on the market uh, between Christmas and new year's or thereabouts because the market was basically always strong that time of year. And, um, and there's such a demand for fish because so many boats are not on the ocean for, for the holidays that uh, you kind of can't go wrong. So naturally I got decent pricing for that trip. And then my next trip was disgraceful. Um, I want to say I came in with around 29,000 pounds of fish, plenty of it being high grade tuna. And when I say plenty of it, my goal as a commercial longliner for big eye, and I, I, I took it as my responsibility 
to not catch a bunch of bycatch or small fish because that's not what I was supposed to target. If I am targeting big eye, I am going to target big eye. And I never went below 76% big eye was my lowest trip. Um, with other species like Mahi Mahi and Wahoo and um, Lustrous Pomfret or Monchong and Opa or Moonfish being bycatch, but it's all sold. So there's, there's a market demand for all that stuff too, but you still wanted to catch your target species. And um, on my final, final trip, I came in with a ridiculous uh, grade of fish and a ridiculous percentage of it being big eye. I actually had 96% big eye on my final trip. That's a big trip, man. And the average weight of gutted tuna was um, 98 pounds. So nearly all my biggest, all my biggest ones combined with my smallest ones my average weight was 98 pounds. I had eight fish that dressed over 250. And I got just over $2 a pound for my entire load. And they were literally laughing and high-fiving on what is supposed to be an auction while they were buying my fish because they knew how badly they were ripping me off. It was so bad. This was on a Saturday auction. It was so bad that they were still talking about it on Wednesday. And I packed my bags and left. Came back to sport fishing. They, they had told me loudly and clearly enough that they didn't want my high-grade, properly handled, beautiful big-eye tunas. So I left. It wasn't because I didn't enjoy the fishery or you know, didn't catch fish. No, you definitely caught fish. You smashed them. There's no doubt about that. They, uh, they, they said loudly and clearly that they were going to do whatever they wanted. And if I continued to catch fish and bring them to them, they were going to do whatever they wanted. So it was time to make a move. So basically what you're saying is the price, the price, the, the price is basically what told you that you didn't feel valued as a fisherman. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I like I said before, I took it seriously to to bring in quality product and the right product, and and I had a lot of passion involved in that. And it's just, um, it was unsettling to be told that it didn't matter, and uh, and so I ended up taking that and moving on. I can attest to the fact that Brett is one of the hardest working. <clears throat> most detail oriented people I've ever met in my life and which has also brought him a lot of success. And I can understand why you would be frustrated because I know how much heart you put into catching those fish. And I have, I have experienced this myself on that auction floor. I have seen my fish, big, beautiful fish, uh, you know, go for well under a dollar and it makes you question everything about your life. I mean, it just, it makes you wonder, like, it, it just, it, it does. It, it makes you question everything about your career choices offshore. You're like, okay, I just spent all this time offshore and, uh, and I just lost money on a trip or I just yeah. I literally just caught a fish that someone's going to sell. I mean, 
it's hard for me to imagine when someone buys a fish off the auction for under a dollar that they're not turning a profit when you're losing money, you know? Like, well, yeah, they, they have to be turning a substantial profit. And, and it's, you know, you just spent 25 days of your life on the ocean um, to, to do a good job and bring back the right stuff. And then to be t- told that it doesn't matter, we don't want it, basically. Um, it's just something I couldn't, I couldn't live with. And what people don't, what pe- a lot of people might not understand about fish industry is, yeah, it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. I, I actually wholesaled fish before I ever got into sport fishing. I worked at a wholesale fish company and, and bought fish from local fishermen. You were actually a buyer, right? Yeah. yeah so you know yeah. the business very well. Yeah, I was actually a buyer. And not only did we buy and sell fish, we also brought in fish and cut it and sold it to restaurants. And what a lot of people don't understand is the true quality of the fish that they're dealing with and the age of it. And I don't want to scare anybody on the age factor because the quality, if it's handled properly, is still there. And it's mind-blowing how long you can get out of a fish. Um if it's handled properly, it, it doesn't really truly start to break down bad until it's cut. And, and that's because of oxidation, just like anything else. The oxygen is getting to that flesh and helping that flesh break down, just like rust on your stainless doorknob. Um, depending on the humidity and everything else in the area you live, that, that's going to start breaking it down. And you're going to have tarnish. And when I was wholesaling fish, I saw the market fluctuations. So I understand what the reality is. Um, But that market just wasn't real. It was uh, based on whatever they wanted to do on any given day. And to take our fish and and dump our U.S. caught high-grade fish into a market of imported not properly handled low-grade fish just sounds disgusting Uh, you know our fish should be on the highest quality level sushi markets in the united states and around the world and not just junk that's being sold to the mass population And, and and um when I say that, I don't mean that in an offensive way. I mean, you know, it's not the same product that's being shipped in from the South China Sea or somewhere else or the Philippines. They, they, they can't handle their fish the way we do. They, um, they just don't have the infrastructure and ice and aren't taught the techniques to take care of things the way that we do. So that fish is substantially different. And, and to think that it should be on the same market is just um, it, not reality. How do we, how do we fix that problem, Brett? Well, the number one thing we should do is enlighten everybody as consumers on what the reality of the products they're eating are. 
Um, unfortunately, a lot of those products would probably disappear if people realized what they really were. Like so much of this tilapia and swir or farm-raised catfish are barely fit for consumption in pet food, probably, in the environments that they're grown in and what they're fed, that people would be mind-blown and disgusted if they knew what they were actually eating. But the problem is the consumer doesn't know that, and the consumer is also too easily fooled on the product itself. And um, when I say that, I mean, let's take somewhere that's a vacation place that people are going to eat a lot of seafood like Key West. And I've spent some time in Key West, run some boats out of Key West. I don't know how many times I've gone to a restaurant and seen a piece of tilapia on somebody's plate that is 100% definitely a piece of tilapia. You can tell by the flake of the flesh and the shape of the, the whole filet when it lands on the table in front of them. And it's just doused in some kind of crazy sauce. So a person that doesn't know about the shape and texture of the fish and isn't going to be able to taste it either doesn't even know that they're not eating some beautiful grouper filet that was caught in the Florida Keys like they thought they ordered. Um, so there's, there's a lot of aspects that would need to change for, for the price on fish to, to meet the quality demands and, and, and market demands that it should. Um, and, and, and we could talk about that till we're blue in the face. I don't know how to get the information out there enough to people other than telling them to please do your research and don't believe what you saw on somebody's feed, actually look it up and, and look at multiple sources and question what you were told. Um, tilapia is garbage. So is farm raised salmon. It's, the same thing it's just orange um <laughs> and the swir oh my god coming out of the mekong river delta who would eat that there's human feces flowing down the river with it and and that's being sold to people as farm-raised catfish well Unbelievable. Interesting you would say that. Uh, in a recent study they did of fish that were mismarketed uh, in Hawaii, which, uh, you know, I've seen way crazier numbers, but uh, that catfish was like 21% of what was replaced for my mic. And oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, so, not just the, the lack of knowledge on the product they're eating, but the mislabeling. And, and the places that are selling this stuff have to be held accountable. And I understand everybody is trying to make a buck, but you can't tell somebody they're eating black grouper and put a piece of tilapia on their plate. It's just unacceptable. How much of that do you think is the fish buyer and how much of that do you think is the restaurant? Uh, it depends on the establishment. 
And I, I wouldn't be able to put a number on that and have anything to back it with. I think it really entirely depends on the establishment. Um, in plenty of cases, it's probably the wholesaler that's selling the restaurant. And in plenty of other cases, it's the restaurant trying to make the extra buck. I know that when I was in wholesale seafood, and this is years and years ago, so my numbers are going to be terrible for everybody, but I couldn't sell decent grade local caught tuna to the restaurants in the area that I was wholesaling because they would not pay for it. It all got shipped to Houston and Boston and Chicago and, and cities that have finer dining where they would pay for it. And all of the fish I was selling was imported lower grade stuff. And when that wasn't available at a certain price point, the restaurants would knowingly buy imported gassed frozen fish to subsidize until the price could come back to the point that they would buy the fresh tuna loin again. Yeah, it's a hard reality. That's for sure. It's going to take a giant, giant uh, awakening and a huge marketing. And, you know, I keep saying there's going to be winners and losers out of this, you know, like you, if, you know, the, if you want to change the fishery for that's best for the fishermen and best for the consumer, there's going to be some people that are going to lose because a lot of the business has been set up around doing it the wrong way. You know? Well, that's right. But the reality is if somebody wants a cheap piece of fish, they should be able to get a cheap piece of fish. They should just know what they're eating. And if they can't afford the good piece of fish, well, I'm sorry. There's chicken that's been pumped full of growth hormones and steroids and maybe expensive fancy fish isn't for everybody is is it maybe not that fish isn't for everybody but that perhaps maybe we should be eating it less at a higher value and 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 appreciating the fact that it's a wild-caught product i would agree with that statement a hundred percent but i think they should also be given the choice of eating the mediocre stuff and after they eat it a few times they'll know the difference and the other stuff will probably mostly phase itself. So you're not really against the imports. What you're, what you really want to see is a, like educational awareness. So people understand the difference. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Cause if, if you really don't care, then you should be allowed to buy that imported piece of fish. That's lower quality. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be allowed to do that. That's your choice. And you should have that choice, but you should know that you're making that choice and that the other piece of fish is going to a local fisherman somewhere. Somebody from the United States is making his living off of trying to get that piece of fish to you. And so you should respect that piece of fish and, and know that, everybody's making their living off of that. I, I don't think I could have said it any better, man. Honestly, I think, uh, I think that's the direction we need to go. Um, I think, uh, 
think we need a lot of education and we need a lot of transparency. And uh, again, there's going to be some winners and losers, but it seems like the people that are doing it right, uh, if we can all get behind it, they should be able to really win out of this because we are the most highly regulated fisheries in the world. And so it feels like that if, uh, you know, I, I, I think this all the time, right. And I, I'm getting, I'm getting sidetracked, but you know, there's more, there's more foreign caught cod on Cape Cod than there is local caught cod. And, and that, that has just always done my head in. And, and part of that's total mismanagement and uh, you know, of the fisheries, uh, both by, you know, the, the managers that are involved in that and um, and the people that are selling the fish. And there's a lot of factors there, but you know, one of my dreams someday would be to see that the cod that are eaten on Cape Cod are from New England, at least, you know, at least from around, yeah. or at least around. Yeah. From somewhere in the Northeast. Yeah. Not yeah. Iceland. Yeah, exactly. Very good case in point, you know, and I would like to think that the people in Hawaii that think they're eating, uh, local Hawaiian caught tuna or eating local Hawaiian caught tuna, you know? So as opposed to gas imported that sauced up fish, that that's the thing. A lot of people don't realize, they just don't realize the huge amount of carbon monoxide treated fish that's in our market. You know, it's, it, it's staggering. And then, but you know, I also find, and, and this is kind of goes to your point uh, to what you're saying about people having the cheap option. A lot of people will say, you know, support local, support local, but then they actually, their actions speak louder because they go with cheap. And, uh, you know, I, I was in a food land and, you know, food land is supposedly Hawaii's home for poke. Right. And they, they do an ungodly, ungodly, uh, amount of sales and, uh, almost all their fish is foreign caught. It's almost all from Vietnam or uh, Indonesia. And I noticed that they had one local option the last time I went there and I hadn't seen that before. So someone had spoken up. And so the local option was $22 and uh, $22.99 a pound. And the foreign caught fish was uh, $10 and 99 cents a pound. And so, you know, you've got such a huge difference in price per pound. Most people look at that and they're not going to see the blood, sweat and tears behind that $22. What they see is that, carbon monoxide treated foreign fish is less than half the money and it's covered with the same shit, you know? So that, that, that's the problem is, is most people don't really have um, a distance. When there's that drastic of a, of a price point, it's really hard for, for people to think about supporting local. It is. It's huge. It's, it's the, it's the Walmart, it's the, it's the Walmart argument, right? You know, it's the uh, small business support small business, but then you buy a thermos or whatever the pot product might be from Walmart. That's a fraction of the price of what it would cost for a small retailer to, uh, to maintain it, you know, and have it on their, st- right. have it in their inventory. So definitely a, a tough road ahead, but I'd like to think that with uh, today's technology and uh, you know, you know, the thing is it's easier to get a story out today. It really is, you know, like, and so I'm hoping that we're able to use some of these different, uh, different forms of media to get the story out. I mean, just, you know, Brett, when I I started this conversation with you today, I had no idea that this conversation was going to go where, where it just did, you know, but it's a reoccurring theme on my podcast that everybody's talking about, you know, Um, it definitely is a big problem. I, I got a question for you. 
Well, it's probably hard to avoid from anybody in the business or been in the business. It is hard to avoid because it's such a hot topic. And particularly because yeah. there's a documentary that's that that's treading right now on Netflix called Seaspiracy. Have you seen that yet? No. no. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it. But we all know reality TV isn't real, right? Well, this is this is a documentary on Netflix, though. This isn't uh, this isn't a uh, this isn't Wicked Tuna. Uh, no, but but I, I got to say, Brett, this has been my takeaway from it. The it's the best documentary I've ever seen pertaining to uh, our commercial fishing industry. The problem is, is that it paints all the little guys in with the big guys. And so it, it, it paints such huge brush, broad brush strokes that the guys that are doing it right, uh, definitely we have to fear the fact that um, we're being grouped into being with giant purse-saners. You know, there's a purse-saner out there today that, that's catching more tuna than I'm going to catch in a year. You know, that's just one boat. Um, so, you know, that is one of the problems with this documentary that's going around right now is that it's 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 lumping the little guy in with the big guy. And that's where we really need to get our marketing and our traceability to understand the difference between the, the little guy who's doing it right and um, and just a, a persaner that is just, you know, just doing it totally wrong. Yeah, more farm to table across the board, whether it's the piece of produce you're eating or the the piece of steak or the piece of fish. I agree. I, if you could, if you could know more about your product all the time, I think you'd be better off and making better decisions. And there's certain people that will pay that extra money when they realize that they're doing the right thing, you know. I you know, I'd like to ask you this, Brett. Because this is a hot topic for me lately, and uh, it's something that I've really seen collapse in in my time in Hawaii, is I've seen the striped marlin, what the numbers we catch just gone to hell, and uh, I think they're in a lot of trouble. Most people I know think they're in a lot of trouble, and I asked Joe this, and I'm going to ask you this again. And what percentage of striped marlin do you actually think come up on a long line that would survive release? Ooh, just striped marlin, not blues, because I know they, they're a much more hardy fish. But yeah, I would have to guess that that percentage would be pretty low. Not to mention because it's a smaller, easier to handle fish, and these crews understand that they're getting paid based off percentage of everything they're catching. That fish isn't hard to deal with. They're bringing it in the boat. I, um, right. And and then the, like the other side, like you're talking about how many of them would survive a release if they were, that percentage couldn't be great either, I don't so think. So let, let, let me give um, you a little background information where I was going with this. Um, one of the proposals right now for striped marlin, because they're critically endangered, is when they get to a certain point, uh, they're going to hit a quota. They're going to be stopped being allowed to retain them. Now, my argument has been that that doesn't really work because you can't throw longline gear in the water without catching them and killing them. So Joe had said that he thought that maybe 5% actually come alive, you know, to the boat just off the top of his head. And I, I believe it's somewhere very high myself. Like I've caught almost no striped marlin ever that have been alive on the gear. So that, that's why I'm curious what you think, like 
of how many of those could actually live if they got to the point where they filled the quota and then they're just going to have to let they're going to have to quote unquote let everything go how many of those do you think were actually in shape where they could survive I'm going to have to agree with Joe Detling on that one. Wow. And you don't agree um, on Joe with just about anything. No, no, I'm no, but I bet it's, I bet it's 10%. Um, and, and I have to say that I, I, again, targeting big Iatunas, I did not catch very many striped Marlins. Um, but the vast majority of the fleet has more bycatch than I did. So I would worry about what's going on with that. I think that those are not going to do well upon release. Um, I could be wrong. It could be as high as 50% of them live. Well, that's what they're claiming, but they have a very, they basically, they say that uh, 48% is what they're saying right now, but they have a very small sample size. And that's one of the problems is that uh, their sample size is, is, is like, it's, I think it's like less than, I, it's definitely less than like 30 fish, which is a very small sample size, right? Yeah, that's way too small of a sample size to base on anything. And I have, go- and I um, have gone and contacted uh, some of the uh, people, and they didn't tag any dead fish because that would be considered uh, pre-mortality, not post-mortality. Yeah. And, and what my big problem is is that I know a huge portion have already come up dead. So if you get to yeah. the point where... It, it, you know, let's say half of them. And you just said, well, you said 50%, right? Okay. Yep. Now, if you got 50% that swim away, how many of those die days later? But regardless, you've already got 50% of them that you're dumping dead. And to me, that just doesn't seem like a sustainable option for a threatened species. Now, you've been a fish buyer. You've been a fisherman. Would you say that catching a fish that is threatened in dumping it would you think that you could call that a sustainable fishery absolutely not that's ridiculous so and whoever wants to think that i don't care what branch of government and fisheries management they work for they should be ashamed of themselves um that that's just see the problem with the striped marlin is a lot of them that you're going to encounter are going to be small. Yes, this that is that and that is that, that also are not going to do well. They just they're too fragile of a fish. A thirty or forty pound striped marlin, his mortality rate after being on the long line gear is not good. It's going to be extremely extremely low. Now, if somehow you end up catching some and they're a hundred pounds, yeah, you're you're your rate of survival is going to be much greater with that just because it's a stronger fish. You know, Brett, what I think is amazing about this, you are saying all the same stuff I said without any knowledge that I have said the same exact thing. One of the problems with the fishery is that the average size striped marlin is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller, which makes them more susceptible, which is also a sign that they're in trouble, right? Yes, in general, yeah. Yes. And so um, one thing we're dealing with here right now is that everyone's quick to point fingers at the foreign fleet, right? Because they do catch the majority. But the U.S. fleet, right, the Hawaiian Longline fleet, is still catching 21% of – now, I've seen them put the number as low as 19.5, and I've seen as high as 23, but it seems like most of the information I can get is around 21% 
of the amount of striped marlin in, in the uh, Western Pacific, the stock that's in trouble that we're, that we're on is caught by a fleet. So if you figure, let's just even say it's 20%. That's one-fifth of the landings. That's not a small number. If you took one-fifth of anything in front of you, you would notice it. So I, I think that's something we need to really talk about because we're so quick to point the fingers at other people. Um, we're still doing one-fifth of the damage. Yeah. So. Yeah, but the only way to correct that that I can think of off the top of my head would be to get rid of your shallow set gear. Um, it would be to say that you have to have longer drop branches on your, on your float lines and you can't set a hook until 10 seconds after the beep where you set your float. Like to try and manage that would be extremely difficult. I Um, love that you're saying this because uh, this this is like real life solutions where you could keep fishing. Joe Dentling had had the same thought, and I was on that same board that, you know, if you eliminate the hooks in the upper water column, you're going to eliminate uh, a lot of your bycatch. Yeah, especially the smaller striped marlins. That's a that's a great thought. It really is. Uh, when we're speaking of bycatch, um, how often do you think you caught a whale? They're they're just so damn smart. Um, you, I don't know how often I caught one, but next to never. How often did I see them? Would be an entirely different discussion. How often um, did they? And we're while we're talking about management, yeah, please. That is probably got to be the worst management decision I have ever heard of, and nobody with any common sense at all would say that the management that was put into place when I was currently longlining was reality. And I'm going to tell you, and you've probably said this before already on one of your podcasts, but I don't know about it. They actually sat down at the table and said that if there were two encounters with false killer whales in a given area, they were going to shut the area for the year based on an observer seeing that interaction. But those same observers, if they saw pods of false killer whales, they did not get documented into the statistics for the number of false killer whales. And on top of that, we're going to do this shutdown based on the number of false killer whales being endangered, and we know our number is wrong. How can anybody sit there with a straight face and say that from a management standpoint. And that's what they did. And they put it in place. You know, I haven't talked. uh, We haven't spoken uh, false killer whales. I have a girl that's coming over uh, to do a podcast who's actually doing a uh, report on it. And we're going to actually have that coming up this week. And we are going to get into the politics of uh, false killer whales and, uh, and whale management. I haven't actually delved into it. Um, but I do agree that there is definitely some flawed science, but the problem a lot of times with flaw science, flawed science is that there's a process in, in, in marine fisheries called, well, one, there's best available science, which doesn't mean the science is great. It just means that's what they have documented. 
this is a huge problem, right? When you go with best available science, well, if you're working with shitty science right off the bat, you know what I mean? It's like bad information in, bad results out. So you've got that problem. Yeah, when you come to the table and say, we know we have bad science, how can you base anything off of it? Well, they've got a thing that's called in the process. And this is this is my biggest issue with the false killer whales. I, I mean, I don't really want to go into this whole thing right now, but they there's called peer review. OK, so a scientist can can formulate a concept and then they, they say, well, this or that. And then they can have, quote unquote, peer review. And then enough people sign off on this peer review. The next thing you know, this opinion is fact. And um, I, I, I don't want to get into all of that right now, but. I've seen a couple of these peer reviews where you're like, well, this seems like it's a lot of times there's some cherry picking for an agenda because what a lot of people don't know and people listening at home don't know is that grants, there are lots of people who make their whole living on problems. And if you don't have a problem, you don't have a grant. And if you don't have a grant, you don't have money coming in. So there's a certain percentage of these scientists and experts and everything that have to continue a problem in order for them to continue getting paid. And that is a big problem in a lot of fishery stuff is that you have a huge portion of people that are making a living from there being a problem. Whether there actually is a problem or not, there needs to be a problem for these people to make money. So. Having said all that, I don't think I had a single long line trip that I did not see false killer whales. If you are where the fish are, guess what? You're going to see them. Right, because that's the, um, they're naturally around the tunas. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I did have an encounter with a sperm whale, I believe, on one trip. And not just seeing it. We saw incredible whales and life out on the ocean all the time. It was really pretty cool. I, I had a number of them actually circle near the boat to try and check us out while we were drifting in between sets um, just to see what we were. But on one trip, I did have a fish that um, like a, it was around, it was around a hundred, 110 pound big eye that was, uh, was definitely brought in to the mouth of something. And I have to think it was, a sperm whale because his mouth is big enough to have this entire tuna in his mouth and have like multiple um, puncture wounds like rows of teeth but they were three inches deep or four inches deep and and had decent separation between the teeth um, on this particular fish so, yeah, there was definitely different types of interactions with different types of whales all the time. Um, but I, I think I only ever actually caught one. And I never caught a turtle. Might have caught one bird. And we're talking thousands of hooks over... years the actual amount of interaction was extremely low like ridiculously low from what you would think um 
with with all the precautions that are taken with you know setting this way and that way and and all of the different gear requirements that you know you have to have a lead this far from your hook and you, your float lines have to be this long or that long so that you don't have stuff in the in the range where they could encounter this or that um the actual number of interactions with outside stuff that you were trying to avoid was so low that you could almost say it didn't happen. Well, that also speaks for some um, of the man- some of the successful management stuff that has gone into into place because sure. the seabird situation sure. used to be terrible. You know, so, that's right. I mean that 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 on the other hand, let, we'll give credit where credit's due. Now I can also say this though, like you know the seabird interaction that you know that was figured out by fishermen. You know, so, yeah. so you got you to yeah. give credit where credit's due. Because we don't want the seabirds on the hooks. If there's a seabird on my hook, the target species is not going to be on my hook. True. And you're, you know, I think, I think most fishermen have a direct connection to the nature around them. And we don't want to needlessly kill stuff that has, you know, that, that, that we're not, we're not, we're not harvesting it. I mean, for me, the last thing I want to do is see any of the things that surround me get killed if I, we're not utilizing it, you know? Yeah, I mean, all, all these things like the albatross and everything are beautiful creatures. I, the last thing I want to do is to have a, a negative impact on their stock. Um, not to mention, that's not what I'm after. Right, without a doubt. Brett, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and I'm going to have you back on the show. Um, what I want to do... Um, I want to end this, uh, with a kind of a quick little rapid fire, a uh, couple questions that I, that I ask most of my guests and, um, you know, just kind of the first thing that comes to mind and, uh, okay, ready, set, go favorite whiskey. Angels envy rye favorite bar in the world. Ooh. P.J. O'Brien's oh, Kansas Australia. I thought you might go Woolshed, but I forgot about your Irish history yeah. there. Yeah. Favorite strip club in the world? I don't even know. Mm-hmm. Is that a pass? Honestly, I, I never loved them as much as you. <laughs> there are a lot of single mothers that need our support out there, Brett, before you get all, that's, before you that's get all judgy. Uh, blonde or brunette? Brunette. Redheads. 100% crazy or just 90% of them? 98%. 98. That's pretty high. Uh, inspiring words or a, uh, a quote about fishing that you would want to pass on to the next generation? The harder you work, the luckier you get. That is a great one. Three most influential people in your fishing career. I got two right off the top of my tongue. That will work. So Greg, Greg Spann and John Bayless. Very good. And that's pretty much it, my friend, unless you have anything else that you want to mention. Um, anything else that we should cover right now, my friend? I think that's it, Brett. buddy. We'll get to more on the Sounds next Sounds awesome, man. Stoked. I really, you know, every time I do one of these things, I don't really know where it's going to go, even though when I know somebody, because I'm kind of just doing it off, you know, off the, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. You don't get away without this one. 
before we go. Most ridiculous thing a charter guest has ever asked you. You were there. This is... Are those sperm whales? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Followed by, are they called sperm whales because they make the babies? Yep. That is. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the better questions we ever got. I thought you might. I thought you might go with the little blue birds one. Oh uh, yeah, I love that question, but that wasn't the well, most let's ridiculous. Just tell, let's just tell that one. Away. It's one of my favorites. It's how long can those little blue birds hold their breath? Yes. And for those talking about the flying yeah, fish, I was say for those of you that don't know, he, the question was in reference to a flying fish. And what was and what yeah. was your reply, Brett? I honestly I remember don't remember very well. The reply was, "It depends if they're in the water or out of the water." <laughs> Oh, that was a clever answer. I was witty on that one. Yep, I remember, I remember that very well. I was laughing my head off, and the and and the lady <laughs> just goes, "Oh, like like that was just like like the fact that it was holding its breath in the water, out of the water, like that was just like a acceptable answer for her." <laughs> <laughs> Even though it left the door wide open. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, that 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 that's a great one. All right, man. Well, honestly, your uh, your uh, your saying about uh, your favorite saying about fishing it was probably where I should have left it because that was beautiful. So why don't you say it one more time? We'll end it with that. Yeah, the harder you work, the luckier right. you get. Love it, buddy. Thank you very much. Stay right, safe out there. All right, brother. Yep. Thank you.